this method which we have just done is often called Vipassana which I think you will know by now is a total misnomer the word Vipassana means inside I think I must have said that several times already but I do know human memory and inside is not a method inside is our goal so we can call this method by the name of sweeping and we should not think of a little broom because that will again disturb the uh, actuality of the method but sweeping is not a bad name for it and the way we've done it is called part by part briefly spoken about mindfulness the four foundations of mindfulness and to give that the Pali name again the Sati Paternas Sati is mindfulness S-A-T-I I know that when you start reading Buddhist books or come across teachers here and there all these words are being used and very often have a confusing effect rather than an elucidating effect which they should be having Sati, mindfulness, S-A-T-I mindfulness is a very good word for it by the way Patana, foundations so we have four foundations of mindfulness and I mentioned already and I'll say that again because it's quite important that we have been using the first and the fourth one first one the mindfulness of the body when we watch the breath when we do walking meditation fourth one when we label distracting or unwholesome thoughts distracting in the meditation unwholesome in daily living fourth foundation of mindfulness obviously there is more to those foundations of mindfulness but this is how we learn it if we don't learn it in meditation there's hardly a chance of ever learning it at all most people use mindfulness just enough to survive like driving a car or peeling potatoes or writing a letter or answering the telephone or darling or pressing buttons all of it needs a certain amount of attention in our jobs some of them require quite a bit of attention all of that we can do but it's all geared towards survival and since it's a foregone conclusion that survival isn't going to happen to anyone it's not a worthwhile goal is it it's a, a waste of a precious human life to do nothing else except that most people never do anything else they manage manage to survive we are in the lucky position for which we should be extremely grateful that we 
know about something else that there's more to life than trying to survive mindfulness besides being that which I've already mentioned walking across the street where there are a lot of cars we've got to be mindful but besides all that there's a spiritual mindfulness and that we learn through the meditative process because it becomes one-pointed and as it becomes one-pointed it has a purifying effect again just like concentration has a purifying effect one second of of concentration is one second of purification one second of real and utter mindfulness is one second of purification the Buddha said the one way for the purification of beings for the elimination of pain, grief and troubles for the final abolishing of all dukkha for entering the noble path for realizing Nibbana is mindfulness that does not mean that that's all we have to do mindfulness is one of the seven factors of enlightenment I'm saying that on purpose because I'm sure that some of you have heard it said as if there was nothing else it happens over and over again there are seven factors of enlightenment which when they are perfected mean enlightenment mindfulness is the first one of seven but not the only one but because it's the first one it also has a special position it is the entry without it we don't enter on the path now I've said that in reference to watching our thoughts if we don't watch our thought processes and eventually learn to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome we haven't got a path we can sit on this pillow from morning to night day in and day out for the next 50 years and we still haven't got a path all we have is a pillow (laughs) we've got to know what we're thinking and we've got to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome that's where mindfulness has its immense importance because it opens up the pathway for us obviously then there are many other steps to be taken it is a part of purification and it is also the path to the concentration it is not equivalent with it if it were we didn't, wouldn't need two words for it we need two words one is mindfulness and one is concentration but mindfulness certainly opens up the concentration because mindfulness is eventually one pointed and then concentration happens so when we practice the methods of meditation we practice mindfulness 
Now there's one other very important thing to be said about mindfulness before I actually come down to the one we've just been practicing. Now you realize you've been practicing what is called in Pali Kaya Nupasana, which is mindfulness of the body in your meditation and you've been practicing Dhamma Nupasana, which in Pali means the content of mind. Now I've been very um, explicit about using that fourth one, the content of mind outside of meditation. I like to emphasize that there's nothing better that you can do, particularly in a meditation course such as this, than to use the first one, the mindfulness of the body outside of meditation. Now, mindfulness of the body, the Buddha actually put at the top of the list of those four foundations. And that's also why it's mentioned as the first one. Not that the others aren't important. The others are equally important. But if you want to learn mindfulness, practice mindfulness, you've got to use the body outside of the meditative practice. Watching how one stands up, walking to the door, the mind slows down automatically. Some of the minds are still racing and have never stopped racing yet. Slow them down by watching your movements. It's a wonderful method, highly recommended by the Buddha and much practiced in all forest monasteries. The monks in this monastery were most interested watching your walking meditation. They were highly interested. Never, I'm sure they've never seen anything like it. Who knows, they might even do it. I'll, I'll discuss it. So, but that's not all. That's only done, what, maybe an hour a day or something in this course. But there are so many movements that are being made by each person without any awareness at all. And the mind races from one subject to the next and has craving in it. No purification at all. Sometimes you can see it in the movements that the mind is racing. In fact, if, you want, if one wants to see it, one can always see it. But one can sometimes see it so blatantly that one would wish the person would stop thinking and putting attention on each step. It would make life so much easier. And it would make meditation so much easier. It's a, um, a request to the mind to do, uh, to meditate when it's been racing and distracted all day long is absurd. It can't do it. It's got to be concentrated outside of meditation so that when we sit down, 
we are already prepared. So the body as the mindfulness object is not only important because of the fact that there is so much movement that we can watch, but also it's actually the easiest. We can see it and we can touch it, which we can't do with the other three. We can neither see them nor can we touch them. So here we have something very tangible, a body that does a lot of things. As we stand up, walk to the door, open the door, put the shoes on, walk to the dining room, pull out the chair, sit down, put the spoon into the dish, put the uh, food on our plate, put the fork into the food, bring it to the mouth. We don't have to think about a thing. All we have to do is watch it. And as we do that, not only do we purify the mind, we slow it down, we gentle it. Mind is very often compared to a wild bull or an untrained puppy dog, whichever you prefer. But you know what is meant. It gets gentled by that. Particularly because all these things that we do with the body are habitual. They're not interesting. We do not have to judge them. We do not have to think, oh, I pulled out the chair very well, or I didn't pull out the chair well at all. <laughs> totally uninteresting. I'm pulling out the chair, that's all. And because of that, the mind quietens down. And as the mind quietens down, it is prepared to meditate. And as one practices that outside of meditation in a meditation course, one also practices it during everyday life. Naturally, watching the body movements is not always appropriate. That's a matter of course. Whatever is appropriate at the time. If, for instance, one has made up one's mind, I would like to watch the body movements, makes sense that my mind will slow down. And at that moment, a whole lot of thoughts come into the mind which seem extremely important. Then, at that moment, one does need to label them. It's no use trying to lose them. They probably don't want to be lost. The thing to do is to label them. And as we label them, we can substitute instead of with something wholesome or profitable in the mind with attention on the body. The more time we spend in, in here in the course and also in our lives, with attention on our voluntary and involuntary movements, the easier life becomes. Because we have less distracting thoughts, we have less craving thoughts, we have a far easier passage to meditation. And also, we become watchful of ourselves. Nobody else. 
when we are watchful for ourselves, except we ourselves. So I like to emphasize that, especially here during the course, practice mindfulness of bodily movements. And you will find that there are so many, starting with the opening of one's eyes in the morning. I have yet to meet anyone who has ever watched that without being told. It's not natural to watch that. It's a matter of practice. One knows the eyes are opening. It's very interesting because it precludes thinking, oh no, it can't be that time again. And it also precludes thinking, oh, I don't feel well enough, I think I'll stay in bed. We don't have to think anything. We just watch the eyes opening. And then we watch the legs getting out of bed. And then we watch the feet going to the toilet. It's very simple, really. And nothing at all has to happen in the mind. First foundation of mindfulness. The first one we have discussed, I will probably mention it again. But what we've just done was the second foundation of mindfulness. In Pali, Vedana Nupasana. Vedana means feeling. Nupasana just means mindfulness, being attentive to. And that's the second foundation. Now, there are two aspects which I mentioned during this um, method while we were going through it. Two aspects. Sensation, physical, and emotion, the more a mental feeling. Both are Vedana, feeling. And both need attention. And in our, I'll go to this daily life first with that. In our daily lives, we do exactly what we're doing with our thoughts. And we have discussed that already when I was talking about the purification of our emotions. We become aware of the unwholesome emotion and try to substitute. If the substitution with the opposite doesn't work, which is sometimes fairly difficult, we use the intermediary step of going somewhere entirely different with our mind until the mind has again calmed down and we can actually substitute anger with love. In the first moment, it's usually very difficult unless one has practiced a long time or one does it over and over. Most people can't do it all at once. But at least... And that's the least we need to do, know and do. At least we need to know when our emotion is unwholesome. If we think it's justified, and if we think it's somebody else's fault, we haven't started to practice. We've got to know it's ours, we're making karma with it, and it's unwholesome, because that sort of unwholesomeness sits within every human being. But we can change it. So it's actually very akin to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, 
where we know the content of the mind. Here we know the emotion. As we become aware of that in daily life, we're greatly helped by the method of meditation. Now here we have an automatic purification system with this method. This automatic purification system exists because we drop whatever arises. I've said that practically every time we move from one spot to the next. Anything that we become aware of, we have to drop in this method, otherwise we can't go on. If we have a, a pain somewhere in the left elbow or someplace and we can't let go, well, we can't go anywhere else. We're stuck at the left elbow or the left knee or the right side of the back or the neck or wherever we happen to have our pain or our unpleasant feeling. If we don't let go, then this method is stopped. So as we want to finish with it and go on with it and get through with it, we are actually forced to let go. That's very uh, a wonderful aspect of it. Because to be forced to let go is exactly what everybody needs. We usually don't let go voluntarily. If we could let go voluntarily, we'd all walk out of here enlightened. And uh, my prognosis is we don't. (laughs) (laughs) So we are forced to let go in this method and in order to carry on with it. Sometimes it may be difficult because some particular spot has um, a very strong sensation or emotion in it. But in any case, this is what happens. So this letting go process is enormously enhanced through this method of meditation. The other aspect of purification which we encounter here, and if you remember, purification is the foundation of the whole spiritual life. And all the rules that ever existed and are existing now in any monastery or any spiritual center are all for purification. There is nothing else except getting purified because that's letting go. And mostly it's letting go of ego. So the purification aspect which we also encounter here in this method which is very automatic and therefore very valuable for us is the fact that all our emotions no matter what they are or where have had to manifest in the body for instance if we're happy which is an emotion we grin or we laugh or at least we make a happy face it's not possible to be happy and look unhappy and vice versa. It's not possible to be unhappy and look happy. Nobody manages that at all. So when we're unhappy, we might cry, frown, 
distort our face to where it actually looks ugly. What depending how unhappy we are. And if we're unhappy constantly, the distortion in the face then gets set and it doesn't look very nice after some decades. <laughs> That's the way it is. The emotions can only manifest in the body. That's why we talk about body language, quite rightly so. When we're tense, uh, anxious, fearful, very often our shoulders tense up. We don't have to put the two into a connection to each other. These are only examples, just to make it clear what it means that our emotions manifest in the body. They have no other place to do that in. And since we constantly have also unwholesome emotions, and I purposely say constantly, most people don't get away for a whole day without one, we constantly put something into our body which is a blockage, which eventually really disturbs the natural flow which we could very well use for the meditation practice. Because the easier we feel in the body, the easier it is to sit still and meditate. And the less blockages we have in the body, the less we are perturbed by them. Now, an unenlightened being, I mentioned that already, responds with the mind to the unpleasant feelings in the body. So, the less of those we have, the less chances we have to respond negatively. Obviously, any unenlightened person responds negatively to the unpleasantness in the body. But if we use this method, there's an automatic clearing out, an automatic purification because of this letting go process, which has to happen. So we have that as a second aspect of the purification. We go out of the um, toes and the tips of the fingers for the simple reason that there's no other place to go to. It's nothing mysterious. It's just that the body is finished there, so we have to go out in order to let go. Now, from a practical standpoint, for all those who've done this for the first time, today. Please, after lunch, when you come back for meditation, do it on your own. Otherwise you'll forget. For all those who've done it before and are well versed in it, please do it at least once a day. Particularly at the time when you know that you're least concentrated. Because this helps to concentrate. So if you are a morning person, maybe you need to do it in the evening or vice versa. At least once a day for everyone. For those who find that they can concentrate better on this than on the breath, you can do it exclusively. 
They're just methods. You don't have to use a breath. You can use this one. If someone had an absolute resistance to it, it's very important to do it. <laughs> as often as one can bring oneself to it. That resistance is due to several factors, mostly to the factor that it's very difficult for the mind to fantasize when you do this. And it's very easy to fantasize when watching the breath. So that's one of the main resistance points. And if we believe in our fantasies, the resistance is very strong. Do it. It's a purification system. It's automatic. We don't have to do anything particular except let go every time there's a feeling. If you do it on your own, three-quarter hours, for it is plenty. We used an hour to do it. That comes because I first have to say it, and then I do it, and then I think a moment, is this long enough, and then I say it again. So it takes longer. Three-quarter hours, absolutely sufficient, and it can be done in half an hour. If you do it in less than half an hour, it's too superficial. If you use more than three-quarter hours, it's too slow and becomes too tedious. Get bored by it. Can't get on with it. So anything from half an hour to three-quarter hour is fine. If you use half an hour and there is a quarter hour left of the sitting period, you can go back to the breath or you can do it over again. There is no limit to the purification that we can accord ourselves. If you then only have quarter hour left and you can't come to the end of this method, you quickly go out through the fingers or the toes wherever you're nearer, just to give it a sort of a, a final ending, not just to stop somewhere in the middle. It feels much better to give it a f finality. So where if you're nearer to the fingers, you go out there. If you're just quickly through the arms, fingers out. If you're nearer to the toes, quickly through the legs and out. If you haven't felt anything at all at the top of the head, which when you do it for the first time, often happens because it's a new... Um, thing to be done and one isn't quite prepared when you do it by yourself start at the spot where you felt something for the first time maybe at the eyes or the back of the head or wherever start at that spot which was the first solid sensation and go up to the top of the head and out and do that six to ten times and then start again at the top of the head and it will be quite simple. If you felt nauseated, this is a very good sign and it usually happens only once. It can be compared to all those emotions that we have 
kept within us all these years have had a cleaning and clearing out process which was so strong that it can be compared to filling a whole rubbish can and therefore there can be a feeling of nausea as I said it usually only happens once it's nothing to reject or be afraid of it's actually a sign that the method was working splendidly if you've had no sensation in a large area like the chest area left or right or both sides or the back left or right or both sides particularly those two particularly the chest area the chest area is one which we seem to connect to our emotions because the spiritual heart sits in the middle of the chest where we feel our emotions so if we have some blockage with emotions it's very possible and also happens often that there is nothing happening within the chest area no feeling if that is so then do it by strips start at the left shoulder take a strip about two inches wide or whatever something like this it doesn't have to be exact and we go down from the shoulder to the waist up again down again and up again four times the same strip then next strip next strip until we reach the right shoulder and by that time we should have been able to feel something same with the back same with any large area if these are all the possibilities which can occur they don't have to if you think you haven't felt a thing nothing at all you have to go to touch sensation and you start wherever there is touch which means the clothing the glasses the lips on top of each other the eyelids on top of the eyes wherever there is touch you use that touch as your focus of attention as you go through you will find that you notice the touch of the clothing you come to the sitting and you certainly you can't uh, possibly avoid feeling the sitting position nobody can avoid that you're sitting on a chair or on a pillow and you can must notice that and you can notice your legs touching whatever the floor the pillow the blanket so you go through it once twice or three times with strictly touch the first time should be able to be uh, aware of sensation and feeling without the touch sensation do the touch sensation as long as necessary if one doesn't feel anything other than that it's a barrier one has built up against one's own emotions particularly because they're probably extremely strong and have led one astray in the past 
it's extremely important to get in touch getting in touch with oneself one's own emotions these are the most common pitfalls in this method and again for those who've done it for the first time please do it by yourself after lunch for those of you who've done it many times with me do it once a day while you're here for those of you who feel they can concentrate better do it exclusively if you like or alternate with attention on the breath you can do that as you please and for those who have a real resistance and say I don't like this at all for them it's extremely important to do it I don't know what to feel with compassion how does that feel how does it differentiate or what is the difference between compassion and loving kindness well essentially one could say that one needs to feel it in order to know it one's got to bite into the mango to know what it tastes like it's not possible to um, understand through words what a feeling is like if one has never fallen in love how is one going to explain what that feels like but if one has fallen in love one doesn't have to explain anything it's the same with that with compassion but there is a difference maybe I can say that much between loving kindness and compassion Um, loving kindness or lovingness is a feeling of warmth and embracing and a feeling of having a deep connection and compassion may be described more as an understanding of dukkha in oneself and others and therefore feeling the empathy with the other person also with oneself and very often the possibility of soothing the dukkha but essentially one needs to bite into the mango and with practice one can do it it's a it's a learning experience and it takes time it's not immediate if somebody is caught in past it's uh, <laughs> a hard one how am I going to translate that um, if somebody is in the present is caught in the um, a prison of past ed- um, educational experiences and it is necessary to um, change this um, uh, prison or to open the prison up so that one can get near to one's um, body sensations and if metta loving kindness and intermittent insights do not um, help what else can one do 
It's very complicated German. <laughs> I have to reread it. <laughs> Talks about a corset. Yes, um, I think from the wording in this question that it points directly at the um, method which we did today. Then uh, part by part over and over again because that is exactly what will help to loosen and to um, soften the uh, experiences that we have so that we can actually uh, bear them because we don't get near them because they're not very pleasant so that particular method is the best one for this particular problem. And one other reminder, nothing in the world is a substitute for actual practice. You can think and think and think and think and understand and understand, but without the practice, nothing happens. Nothing at all. So doing it is the main thing that we can possibly help ourselves. And when we help ourselves, we help the world. That's a nice thought, isn't it? Could you please explain the meaning of rebirth dash samsara? What is it that's going to be reborn? Energy? No. What's being reborn are karmic resultants. And the word samsara are the rounds of birth and death. And uh, yes, one can put the two together, rebirth. But samsara is actually the worldly experience of birth and death and all that in between. It's also samsara. And energy, yeah, well, it's a dicey word. Nobody knows exactly what it is, do we? That's energy there, the lamp. No, it's the karmic resultants that are being reborn. Is it all right to recall the feeling of unconditional love for a beloved one who is dead already? Doesn't it mean attachment to a memory to the past? Or can this love affect, oh sorry, can this love affect the energy of this former person in a good way? There we go again with energy. Um, a word that is not ever very clear. It's fine to, ha to recall the feeling of unconditional love for a beloved person if it was really unconditional love. It's unusual and highly unlikely. Unconditional love is something one's got to learn. Nobody does it just like that without having a lot of experience and a lot of learning. But whether it's unconditional love or just love doesn't matter. If there is a real feeling for the person that is already dead, but the love feeling is there, it's fine to use that to, um, first of all, to use it in order to give it as a gift to others. And secondly, if we bring it up and extend it to the person that's dead, it may have a very good effect for that person. It may. 
When we kill an animal for food or a tree for wood, I assume it is craving that we want the food or the wood or whatever. If we bring gratitude to our hearts for the being to be killed and what it will provide for us, is this a good idea? Some cultures have rituals like this. Yes, it's a very good idea. In fact, it's a very good idea to be grateful when we cut a lettuce in the garden. It doesn't even have to be an animal. It can be as uh, little as a radish. And uh, you pull it out of the earth and put gratitude in your heart that it has grown for your nourishment. Yes, of course, uh, you, one can put it under craving the, uh, the food or the tree for the house to build. But as long as we have bodies, so long we will kill. There's no way around it. If you even just think of the bacteria that sometimes beset us and we have to take medicine or do something. Many people who are now dying from AIDS believe they will be reborn as a pig or a dog. If they have been involved in prostitution, homosexuality, etc., what can we tell them to help them deal with this problem? Um, the problem being, uh, apparently, that they're thinking that they're going to get a bad rebirth. Uh, this um, being reborn as a pig or a dog is not very um, Western, is it? It's more uh, an idea that we find in Asia. And um, we can tell them that uh, it depends entirely on their intentions that they've had. And if the intentions have not been um, harmful to others, then there's no reason why they can't be reborn as a human being. And also, they're still, while they're still alive, there's still time to make good karma. I don't know if Westerners have also this kind of fear, even if they're Buddhist. If they don't, it may mean that their belief in reincarnation is not very deep, but rather intellectual, uh, possibly. It's uh, not that easy to distinguish between what people think intellectually and what they really uh, have as a feeling. In the West, people don't really believe that they can be reborn as pigs or dogs. And in fact, maybe rebirth is not very clear. So um, the fear of a bad rebirth may be much more um, noticeable in Asia and uh, in the West, more the fear of death. Both need to be worked on, whichever fear one has. Any fear is detrimental to one's happiness and any fear is negative. So whatever we fear, we should let go of it. Do dreams count as a valid means of self-discovery? Psychiatry uses them, but are they appropriate for our path? The Buddha did not explain dreams as a rule. There are two instances 
in all of the discourses where he explained dreams and one of the instances the reason for the explanation was the fact that the king who had had the dream thought that in the meaning was that he should go to war and so the Buddha stopped him from that and the other time he explained the Buddha explained that the dream concerned the um, dead relatives that need to be helped the only only times those two times that he talked about dreams so at other times there was nothing to be found if a dream quite obviously shows something that is very very much connected with oneself whether one looks that way one looks now or looks entirely different usually one looks entirely different it doesn't matter but if it's really connected with oneself and it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to figure out what it means I would say, I personally would say, personal opinion, that one can use it. But if one needs a lot of imagination, I think one shouldn't try, because the imagination will be going totally the wrong way. Is ego the same as self? Yes, it is. Just another word. Which connection do they have to consciousness? Well, they have a very uh, intrinsic connection. They color everything that we are conscious of. It's me being conscious. That's what it, what me and self are doing. <laughs> I think we should practice rather than try and figure that one out. Um, <laughs> Today, while sitting, I had an insight into sex. I used to think that sex was wonderful, necessary, (laughs) and that orgasm was a momentary liberation of ego. Yeah, I've read that somewhere, too. Um, (laughs) The more sex I had, the more powerful I felt. The craving for sex is nothing but the craving for an I, or me. After all, all that sensation must be happening to someone. Please comment on the Buddha's teaching on this subject. Well, there are two kinds of teaching on that subject. One concerns monks and nuns and their celibate. On the spiritual path, if one takes it absolutely seriously and is determined to get to Nibbana, celibacy is necessary. And not only in the Buddha's path, in any spiritual path that takes the spirituality seriously enough to come either to Nibbana or the God experience or whatever one likes to call it. Then there's another way of looking at it and from the Buddha and that is for householders. Sex is perfectly legitimate, belongs to a householder's life, but it should be done within the family very simple if we do good deeds because we hope 
for good karma rather than because we want to do them from our own inner sense of generosity, morality, loving kindness or empathy. Are we not in a sense doing it for gain? And then wouldn't there be attachment and craving? And then can't there attachment craving for good karma? Can't quite make it out, but it says and then isn't there maybe like that. Isn't there attachment and craving? and maybe not good karma. Well, that's quite true. If we do good deeds because we want to make good karma, it is not quite as ideal as doing good deeds because we feel the sense of generosity. But it's certainly much better than not doing them. So it's just a matter of various levels in fact, some people, especially in the East, do good deeds to make merit. Make merit is also making good karma, but make merit for their next life. Well, that's certainly trying to gain something by it, but it's still much better than not doing it. And if one has done the good deeds long enough, because one wants to make good karma, eventually it's a habit and one is searching for opportunities to do good deeds. Um, I'll just read out the part of this which is the question. The rest is explanation. Why is the present moment very often experienced as not enough? Always this craving for a peak experience. Not necessarily peak the uh, present moment is very often experienced as not enough because the mind has not been trained to stay in the moment. When the mind is trained to stay in the moment, each moment is a peak experience. We don't need anything else. That's it. And we have had them. We have had that experience. Um, at, on various occasions, everybody has had. If something is really interesting, or we meet a person whom we feel really are in sympathy with, and there is a very interesting conversation, or we see a wonderful sunset, then we are in that moment, and we feel really at ease and we may feel quite um, full of joy because we are right there. But if the moment is apparently not terribly interesting, the mind isn't trained well enough. It's just a matter of training, that's all. It's a matter of time. Patience is one of the ten virtues. I know of a meditation teacher well known in California. Where else? (laughs) 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 Who mainly uses the prayers and sayings of saints from various traditions. During meditation, these prayers are repeated over and over again. Isn't this contemplation rather than meditation? 
Well, there are two ways of using prayer. Uh, one can be contemplation, one can be meditation. If we use the prayers or the sayings as far as their content goes and try to understand that content and go deeply into it, then it's contemplation. But then again, various uh, spiritual disciplines use the words contemplation and meditation interchangeably. We are using it that way. So if there are prayers and sayings and we want to know what they're all about, what does it mean, then it's contemplation. But we can also use a silent prayer. If the prayers are repeated and maybe the mind, which was something that was asked about the mantra already, and the mind eventually latches on to that prayer and repeats it silently, not, not verbally, but just silently, it can very well lead to the first meditative absorption. And then it's meditation. The Tibetan Book of the Dead speaks about dreadful bardo conditions. Near-death experiences with awful pictures, but they are not uh, often published. Is there a way to experience death in peace if we, do, if we only practice very little? And I think that one hour a day is very little. Well, how about two or three hours then? Might be a great help. And uh, as I said before, the um, those visions that come from different cultures are not necessarily the visions that we would have. They're very culturally and socially imbued with what one has seen and known during this lifetime. In fact, they are totally colored by that. So the Bardo conditions are not necessarily valid for Westerners. That doesn't mean that there couldn't be very unpleasant near-death experiences. Certainly there could be, depending who's got it. And in order to practice, practice means all our waking hours. Practice does not mean sitting on a pillow. Sitting on a pillow can be meditation, can be contemplation, it can be sleepiness, it can be fantasizing, it can be anything trance, whatever. Practice is something entirely different. There are 24 hours in a day of which we might sleep, let's say, seven, which leaves us with 17 hours each day. Naturally, if we practice only one hour, it's not enough. It's not enough to lead a spiritual life. It's not enough to have spiritual growth. 
But there are very few people in the world who can sit on a pillow for 17 hours a day, if any. It's highly unlikely. But there are many people in the world who can practice for 17 hours a day. We have to distinguish between the word practice and the word sitting in meditation. Naturally, our practice needs the meditation, but meditation is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. And there is never a course that that misunderstanding does not have to be cleared up and then reappears in the next course. Practice means substituting the unwholesome for the wholesome, watching one's emotions, watching one's thoughts, trying to lessen the egocentricity of knowing more, of knowing better, of being right, the egocentricity of wanting one's own way, all that is practice. Meditation is part of it. And if we don't have meditation as a support system, it's very difficult to lessen egocentricity. But practice is 17 hours a day, and any time we meet a person, we practice loving-kindness and compassion and as we do that loving kindness and compassion gets anchored in the heart and we don't even have to practice it's there that's the practice part so whether the bardo has any bearing on our death experience or not our practice in daily life certainly has a great deal of uh, connection with our death experience. In the sits today, my heart has been beating so strongly that it has been hard to focus on the meditation subject. I have repeatedly found myself being distracted by it and have then gone back to the meditation subject, but the effort has been great and I wonder if it would be better to use a heart beating as a subject at this time. Otherwise, I feel like I'm fighting myself. A heartbeat is not a good idea for as a meditation subject. Be better to do loving kindness at that time. And if it doesn't stop the strong heartbeat to go for a walk. <laughs> Does a non-self mean the same thing as the emptiness in the Heart Sutra? I presume it's the Prashnaparamita. Huh? If they don't mean the same thing, what's the difference? Yes, they do mean the same thing. How to read? When? When? No, if. <laughs> if, if the meditation, if, no, when, mere by other. If I feel the transparency in meditation, it, is it useful to put something, for instance, loving-kindness, there? Or, or, or should I remain with the transparency? Definitely with the transparency. 
what is the difference, if there is any, between the sweeping and the relaxation in yoga, where you relax in the same way all the parts of the body, it is usually done lying on the back. The uh, relaxation in yoga is exactly that what it says, it's relaxation. And uh, what we do in the part by part is for insight. And I mentioned only the purification aspects of it. The insight aspects are also manifold. And the first one that we can look at is the impermanence of all our feelings and sensations. And immediately we realize that we know only where we put our mind. When we put our mind on a certain sensation, it's there. But when we take the mind away, it's gone. So there is two things that we learn from that. One is the impermanence, and the other one is we don't know anything what we don't, where we don't put our mind. The Buddha was asked one time whether he was omniscient. And she said, not in a sense of knowing everything all at once. I know that, what I put my mind on. We can experience that ourselves. So that's one of the um, very important insights that we gain from that method. There's another very important insight that we can gain, and that is we don't have to react. One day we will learn to react only when we want to. Here, if we have an unpleasant or a pleasant sensation or feeling, we let it go in order to get on with the meditation. And there's no reason in the world to blame anyone for the unpleasant sensation. Nobody's done anything. Everybody is concerned with their own meditation. And yet there is a very unpleasant sensation. So learning, first of all, not to react, and secondly, not to blame anyone all this unpleasantness that goes on within oneself are two of the most important lessons that we have to learn for our own purification. Purification is inner work. It's not just a word. It's inner work and it's the, the one work which is strictly spiritual. There's no materiality connected to it. How we do it, these are methods. Use the ones you like, if you like. So as we do this particular um, method, we have impermanence. We have the ability to see we only know what we put our mind on. 
and it disappears if we take our mind away from it. It may even disappear while we're still there because it's very fleeting. We have the opportunity not to react to anything at all that goes on and we certainly learn that there's nobody to blame. It just is the way it is. We have another possibility which we will talk about at another time. We can see from various sensations that this body is very much made up of the same ingredients as everything else. And it will help us, and we will go into that in more detail, and it will help us also to lose a little bit of the sense of this is me. The stronger the sense of this is me, the more righteousness. And the more righteousness, the more there is the possibility of having difficulties with other people. So, and with oneself too. When we see that we're no different from everything around us, that everything that exists within us exists also outside of us as far as materiality is concerned, there's a little bit less self-importance. And if you find a little bit less self-importance, sometimes called very aptly self-cherishing, we may learn to cherish others more. So we have a chance here also to have more of a heart connection with other people. It's a very important factor for a life which is harmonious and balanced. That heart and mind are in balance. We have both. We have the thinking ability, the logic, the analysis, and we have the loving ability. And we have to purify both and develop both in order to have a true way of practicing. If we just practice with the mind, it will never work. A spiritual path, any spiritual discipline, is the closest relationship we can have because it concerns ourselves. Now, if we have a relationship with another person which is strictly built up on mind and has no heart in it, it's not very satisfying. In fact, it's very dry and it may have only utilitarian results. If we have a relationship with another person which has only heart in it, it's a little better. But if we don't understand that other person at all, it doesn't have a chance to last. We have to understand and love. So our heart connection, when it is helped 
through any of the methods will enhance and will anchor the practice. If we can't open our heart, we can't practice. We can know a lot about Buddhism. There are thousands of books these days and we can read them all if we like. I wouldn't advise it, but one could. But it doesn't do a thing. It just clutters up the mind with all sorts of concepts. But if we actually practice, and this particular method that we're talking about, the part by part, has many of the features that will really change our outlook. And that's what is needed to change our outlook, but from the depth of feeling and not from the depth of understanding. Meditation is all based on feeling. We have to first understand how to do it, but it's all based on feeling. And enlightenment is based on feeling. If we don't feel it, we're not enlightened. Logic, isn't it? And if we don't feel enlightened, we aren't. But if we imagine we are enlightened, we're in a bad way. Because then we can't learn anything. And then we've blocked the path. The feeling that we get, the sensations that we get in this particular method are geared towards purification and insight. And the purification aspect we have already discussed this morning and the insights that tell us more about ourselves will help us to reduce the self-importance will help us to reduce our feeling of being special. There was a newspaper, a Zen newspaper, where was it? Oh yes, in Australia. It was called Nothing Special. Wonderful name. I don't think they have it anymore. Nothing Special. It's all one and the same. And if we can see ourselves part of all that surrounds us, part of all of creation, but nothing special, we have a much easier passage. It can happen in this um, method. It may not. It may happen through another method. But basically, in answer to the question, it's not a relaxation method. It's a method for insight and purification. And that's also why we don't do it lying down, even though it would be far more comfortable. <laughs> but because we need the uh, self-discipline to really recognize ourselves, we also need the self-discipline to sit. The two go together. And we have already talked about the difficulties in sitting and how we should uh, deal with them and how we can deal with them in the best way. These are the main aspects 
of the insights that arise when we do the this method more often I would uh, again suggest that the uh, part by part should be done by everyone at least once a day and by those who find it difficult to get in touch with their sensations and feelings by all means as often as you can possibly bring yourself to do it if we can't get in touch with our own feelings and sensations we don't know who we are we mustn't imagine that there is anyone who hasn't got feelings or sensations everybody's got them but some people find it difficult to get in touch with them if we get in touch with them and recognize them we get a better idea of what there is because also if we let go of them which we have to do in order to carry on we realize that they don't necessarily have to be called mine it's just an idea that all these feelings and sensations are mine and we could try and see feeling and sensation as nothing other than feeling or sensation and maybe discard that idea of mine for a moment and maybe discard the idea of I am aware of feeling and sensation and maybe for a moment have the that moment of insight where there is nothing other than just feeling or sensation and when there's nothing other than that we get a bit of an example of what it can be like when we don't constantly resurrect this idea this is me there's just feeling there's just sensation and it's already finished so it can bring quite a lot of insight it can certainly bring the insight into impermanence it can as I've just explained have an bring an inkling of insight into non-self and it certainly can bring an insight into dukkha because a lot of the sensations are not pleasant some are some aren't and then we realize nothing is happening dukkha just is and that's what the Buddha said dukkha just is nothing has to happen nobody has to do anything nobody has to say anything we don't have to do anything we don't even have to think anything we can just be, become aware and realize what's going on within the body and we know there's always dukkha to be found anicca dukkha nata impermanence unsatisfactoriness and coalescence 
are the three characteristics of the universe. Anything which has to do with insight, with true insight, refers to one of those three. It has to be in personal experience. Nothing else changes us. Reading about it, hearing about it, even intellectual understanding of it, does not change one's character. One remains as egocentric as one always has been. One changes one's character when the personal experience happens and one recognizes it. Wisdom is the understood experience. You see, we all have the experience, but we don't understand it. We all have the experience that, for instance, our breath is totally impermanent, constantly changing. <coughs> but do we understand what that means? That we are actually not solid? Everybody in the whole world has that experience. Every moment. But does it change their character? Has it made them less egocentric? Has it given them the opening of the heart towards all beings? Nothing of the kind. They continue breathing. That's all. So wisdom is the understood experience. And we have that opportunity in all methods. But this particular method has a fair few extra possibilities for having the personal experience of what is happening within us. 